and welcome to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. My name is Jesse, and I'll be your host. So on today's episode, we are going to head over to the frat house, the sorority house, whatever fucking house we're going to, for a party, but then also we're going to stop by Detective Miller's place and, you know, maybe have an existential crisis or whatever. I don't know. But anyway, today we're going to be covering... Uh, a very dear movie to my heart. Uh, and we're going to be covering a little movie called Night of the Creeps from 1986. Now, I would like to say first and foremost right now, um, you may hear some barking upstairs uh, from where I'm at. Um, we are currently dog-sitting my sister's dog. Um <clears throat> So, uh, I can't really stop her from barking, so you know what you came for. Okay, listen. But, um, she's also very cute and very adorable. But, you know, uh, but yeah, she doesn't shut the fuck up sometimes, so it's, it's fine. But anyway, back to Night of the Creeps, though. So, uh... I actually was recommended this movie to cover on the show um, from one of the listeners, uh, Robert, uh, Robert Prudhomme, I believe, or however you say your name. Sorry if I butchered it. Uh, But he actually posts, like, every week he shares my... um, he shares a story of my Spotify link uh, for anybody who listens. So uh, thank you, Robert, for doing that. I love that. Um, but I remember he reached out and we were like Instagram, you know, messaging a little bit. And he said, oh, I think like a fun one you could cover would be like Night of the Creeps. I said, oh, my God, I love Night of the Creeps. Like, yes, I will co- definitely cover that. And it just so happens that around the time that you're going to be hearing this, I uh, it'll be around the same time that this movie actually came out. In 1986, so look at look at that. But uh, yeah, I I really enjoy this movie. Actually, my my first exposure to it, I didn't grow up with it or anything like that. But um, I would say I probably first became aware of it as I did with a few movies. Um, watching it was In Search of Darkness, the horror movie documentary with the you know 80s movies. Um, you can find all three of them. I uh, know actually you can only find the first, uh, the second. And the third one are on Shutter. The first one used to be on there. It's not on there anymore. I do own it, though, on Blu-ray. But uh, anyway, it's a really cool series. They're like three or four hour documentaries that literally talk about just like the 80s and horror movies. And they have like really heavy hitters for some of these like in these. And on the first um, go around, they did cover Night of the Creeps, uh, mainly because I believe... Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Tom Atkins was on there. Um, and I think Fred Decker might have actually been a part of it, but I don't remember actually. But I know Tom Atkins was there. He talked about it because he really likes this movie. And uh, yeah, so I became familiar with it from In Search of Darkness. And then when I actually first watched it, it was actually last year in 2022, um, in October, because. Uh, friend of the pod girl that's scary uh actually um they were a part of the horror queers uh halloween watch along where they um every day of october last year uh the horror queers put up like a category of a different kind of horror movie to watch uh and they were doing this on instagram and twitter and uh the one that girl that's scary recommended was parasitic and so I was like, uh, oh, okay, great. And it just so happened at that same time. Uh, I was going through it that day, y'all. It was, uh, I got, like, my car overheated. I had to get it, like, uh, fixed or whatever. It was a whole thing. I ended up having to miss work that day. But, uh, so that was super fun. But I was able to watch Night of the Creeps because it was on Pluto TV or something like that. Like, and I was like, huh. Well, I'm at home right now, and I, you know, had to miss work today. I, I guess I might as well pop this on. Like I've never seen it before, because um, it wasn't streaming. It, it wasn't streaming a whole lot of places, really. And so I was, I got lucky, and I was like, okay, all right, let's let's pop this on. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, oh, okay, like this, this is this is absolutely like up my alley. You know what I mean? Like I was like super down for it, really. Um, there also may be minimal editing in this, uh, episode too, because I'm trying to get this out a little quick. Uh, I've been slacking a little bit with just records in general a little bit, but you know, I'm going to get back on it. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, so don't expect that I'm going to be like super edited or anything like that. Um, so yeah, but again, you know, it's the, the real live, uh, life of a podcaster, I guess. But yeah, no, Lady of the Creeps though, I think it's just so 
fun. And this really is kind of a, it is, it is very much a cult classic movie. I think this movie came out and was really, really a bomb. Uh, but it, I think also just really, I don't know. I, I think it really, it's such a love letter to horror in a way. Uh, you know, Fred Decker is such a fan of horror films. Um, and you can tell by seeing this movie. Um, I have not watched the monster squad. Um, I'll get around to it at some point, but, uh, this is my first exposure to Fred Decker, but I, uh, you can just tell he loves this genre. And, and so for this to be something that kind of came out and flopped is it's unfortunate, but, I think it has since been able to find this audience of people who really love it. And I really appreciate that, you know, and, and it really is also just like, yeah, it's, it's not a spoof. It's kind of a little bit of a, there's a little bit of parody in there and the camping factor to it where it's, you know, it's aware of like fifties B horror films, sci-fi films, you know, and it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's kind of, using that to its, you know, advantage, if you will. Um, but yeah, I, I think this is a super fun movie and I'm, I'm glad to cover it. And so as we normally do on the show, we'll go over some figures of the film. We'll talk about how the movie came to be a little bit about the plot characters, things like that. Um, but without further ado, let's get on with those figures. So Night of the Creeps was released on August 22nd, 1986, and has a runtime of 88 minutes, was distributed by TriStar Pictures, and has an estimated budget of $5 million. For the opening weekend rank and gross of this movie, we're looking at it being at number 20, with a gross of $220,800, and then overall a domestic and worldwide gross of $591,366. So needless to say, this was a financial flop. We're looking at a 73% on the tomato meter for Rotten Tomatoes, with about 22 reviews from critics, and then a letterbox score of 3.5 out of 5. In talking about some of the production crew of this movie, we have the director and writer, Fred Decker, who had directed um, The Want Monster Squad, which was uh, about a year or two, I think it was a year after this, uh, Night of the Creeps, he directed The Monster Squad, uh, which is also a cult classic in its own right. And he also directed RoboCop 3 as well. Um, I've never seen a RoboCop movie, so I don't really know what to think of it, but apparently it's bad. Um, But he also wrote uh, The Predator, which I don't think was the actual Predator movie, obviously. It was a movie called The Predator. And he also wrote House 2, The Second Story as well. Which, again, uh, House is a great horror movie, too. And the House uh, sequel that he wrote uh apparently is also kind of like really fun and campy too so who knows maybe i'll do it for the show uh when we're looking at a composer we're looking at barry devornan um who had been the composer for the warriors exorcist 3 and also xanadu as well um so he's kind of cool he's actually on the special features of the blu-ray that i have um he's a part of this little documentary that they made uh, cinematographer was Robert C. New, and he's actually the cinematographer of Prom Night from 1980. Funny enough. Editor, uh, we're looking at Michael N. New, who he had edited uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, uh, Dead Silence from 2007, Mary Shaw, kicking the ass, um, you know, and then Rocky 4, or Rocky 5, sorry, and then also House. He edited House, which is kind of fun, too. And then for actors, like our cast of characters, we're looking at Jason Lively, um, who plays our main character. Um, I think it was Chris, right? Um, he is the brother of Robin Lively, who is teen witch herself, Louise Miller, and also Blake Lively, who's like from Gossip Girl and you know other things that she's been in. Uh, but the Livelies, hell yeah. Uh, then we have Tom Atkins, who is just the best horror daddy ever. He is in this movie. He's also in The Fog. He is in Halloween Three Seasons of the Witch. He is in Creep Show. Um, he's he's he seems like he's such a cool dude, and I will be so so sad uh, when he shoves off. But uh, right now, you know. He's, he's amazing. I love him. Uh, Steve Marshall, um, who plays JC in this movie, um, 
He pretty much uh, is only famous for this movie, but apparently he had been doing stuff. Um, I think he's apparently Canadian or something like that. I don't even know if he's like an American, maybe. But anyway, but uh, he, uh, yeah, like he apparently knew Robert Downey Jr. Funny enough, like he met him on a film or something like that. And he was like, hey, you're like really cool. You should come to L.A. and like we could get you some work. He's like, is that how it works? And Robert Downey Jr. was like, yeah. And so he was able to get this role in um, Night of the Creeps, which is kind of cool. Jill Whitlow, who plays Cynthia Cronenberg, um, she's from Weird Science and also Porky. She had small roles in both of those. And then also Dick Miller's in this movie. And Dick Miller, for those who don't know, he's been in all sorts of movies. He was in the original uh, Little Shop of Horrors. He was in Terminator, Gremlins, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and also Chopping Mall. So we're looking at that. But those are like kind of the notable cast of characters that we have in this movie as well. So I wanted to give a little bit of context uh, before we move into any kind of a plot or character breakdown of this movie, Night of the Creeps. I wanted to give some background about how this movie came to be and kind of the legacy it's had. So to start that, we got to talk about a man named Fred Decker. So Fred Decker, he was born in San Francisco. He was raised in the Bay Area and he always loved like horror and sci-fi movies. He was always a fan of those types of films. He started making his own amateur films. Um, he was like 12 and this then made him want to go and pursue a you know career in filmmaking and so he went to UCLA the school of theater film and television that has all these different alumni that came out of it Francis Ford Coppola everybody fucking you went there at UCLA uh, a lot of famous people but uh He was going there in the early 80s, and so he knew, like, Shane Black, who was the guy who wrote um, Lethal Weapon, for example. He also knew the two gentlemen um, who actually wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which is cool. Uh, Those two guys. Uh, And so, and they all lived together, actually. They had, like, a little unofficial fraternity, quote-unquote, like, where they, you know, were just, like, these movie heads, and uh, they lived together, and they would make little movies and all that kind of stuff. Um, But, yeah. Yeah, he ended up going there, and that's what he did. Um, and then in 1983, um, Steve Miner, who is a noted horror director, he is the guy who did Friday the 13th Part 2. He did, um, oh God, all these different types of things. I mean, like, he directed House, um, Friday the 13th Part 3, Halloween H2O. Um, he also did the uh <laughs> the horror themed episode in season one of Dawson's Creek actually he literally directed that which I thought was kind of funny um anyway so yeah Steve Miner he hired Decker to write a script for him in 1983 for Godzilla King of the Monsters in 3D which was a product that was never actually produced um anyway but uh Decker's first success though came in 1986 which um was about a 15-page Twilight Zone-inspired script, an original story that was then expanded into a full screenplay um, by writer Ethan Wiley for what would then end up becoming Steve Miner's, you know, directorated movie, House, from 1986 with William Catt. Yeah, you know, fun movie. Go watch it if you haven't already done so. Uh, But yeah, that was uh, literally Fred Decker was a part of that because he helped write the original story of it. Um, so this movie went on to like get nominated for like, um, you know, film festivals and it, it, it was like a real big, you know, deal for him to be a part of that. Um, cause the house ended up being successful and, and that's really cool. Um, and so that same year, um, he made his directorial debut with this movie, Night of the Creeps, which the script was really only written in a week. Um, and it's homage to B movies of the 1950s and 60s. Um, and really, this movie came because uh, one night, Fred Decker w- couldn't sleep <laughs> when he was at the, the house with his film buds. And he just thought to himself, he just thought, like, you know, all right, like, I want to, like, have this character who, like, you know, 
All they do is say, thrill me. You know, okay, so what kind of guy would this be? Okay, maybe it's like this hard up, like grizzled cop guy or whatever, right? Maybe that's what he's doing, all right? Okay, so we got our cop and he's saying, thrill me. Okay, well, what happened to make him say, thrill me? And so they were, he was just kind of going on with this whole thing. I mean, he really, like, like I said, he wrote it in a week. And so. Like, he just kind of let it all come out. But again, this is coming from a guy who is such a fan of horror and sci-fi that he was just like, he let the story just kind of build around it. And he was just like, okay, cool. Like, let's let's make this thing, you know? Um, He ended up just like kind of letting it flow out, really. Um, And that's like super fun and cool, I guess. But yeah, I mean, that's really how this movie came to be he then ended up um getting charles gordon who unfortunately has since passed away he actually had passed away halloween of 2020 um but he has um he's actually this is his first producing credit but he went on to then produce die hard as an executive producer he also did field of dreams he did Waterworld. um funny enough he did trojan war with will friedel <laughs> Um, the girl next door. Uh, yeah, he's actually in the special features of uh, this Blu-ray I have, um, where he talks about it. And he and Fred were really like baby producer and director. Really, um, they had never done anything like this before. Um, and we'll all get to it in a little bit. Um, but it's sad to know that he's since passed away. I think he was dealing with cancer. Um, also on the Blu-ray, if you watch this, you can tell that his voice is very affected. Um, I don't know. They did this in 2009, but he had like a very like, um, I guess he was going through some things where he just had a very particular kind of voice. Um, but again, it probably doesn't help that like he then ended up dying um, of cancer, which is very sad. But uh, so rest in peace, girl. Like we we appreciate and love you. But anyway, so yeah, like he was able to he had known him, I guess, and he was able to get this. You know, he was able to get this written, and then. Charles Gordon was able to make some calls. He had to lie a little bit because <laughs> he he like called up somebody. I don't know. He knew somebody at TriStar, and that's how it kind of got the ball rolling. Because the guy he spoke to, who was like kind of a friend of his, um, he he told him like you know hey, I have three other studios who are fighting for this <laughs> when really that wasn't the case. And anyway, but like you know, it, they were able to get this together and they gave it five million bucks and we're like, all right, let's do it. And what's cool too is that I think Fred Decker, he seems like he is he is such a fan of horror and and movies and stuff, but he seemed to, uh, from what I can gather from what the cast had said, um, he, he really ran like a good tight shit, you know, and he knew exactly what to do, you know, and and um that's so interesting with just like a first time director uh type person. Like he was able to, to you know, be able to man the ship, which is a big part of it, and that's huge. So I I think that's like really kind of fun uh he originally wanted to apparently do this in black and white which makes sense because the beginning of it is in black and white um and he included like every b-movie cliche he could think of he insisted on directing the script himself you know of course he wrote it um most of the main characters in the movie have the last name of a horror director um so again you have like chris romero and you have james carpenter hooper jc um you have Cynthia Cronenberg, uh, Detective Landis, who's like one of the detectives, uh, Sergeant Ramey. Uh, also, some of the officers were like Officer Craven and Officer Bava, which are also really funny. <laughs> so, like, you know, I mean, yeah, of course, like they were going off of that. Um, Minor was another one. They had, um, well, they had Cameron uh, as well, because that was. Um, Ray Cameron, uh, him, and that was uh, obviously James Cameron. But uh, yeah, they had Steve. Mi- they had Steve Miner's name in there as well, which again, Fred was like a friend of his, kind of, um, which is so super cool. So I don't know, that's like super fun and silly. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think this movie, like, it ended up having like you know, I think some of the 
issues that came about were in the effects work. Um, now, the effects in this movie are great, actually. But uh, these actually came from uh, a couple different people. So you had Howard Berger and I believe it was Howard Berger and who else? It was him and uh, Robert Kurtzman, who are a part of K&B. It's literally uh, Robert Kurtzman, uh, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger are K&B effects, which is a very well-known uh, effects, um, special effects place uh, that does a lot of horror movies and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, they were brought on for this. Um, David Miller, who was a part of doing some, I think he did like Nightmare on Elm Street 4 or or one of those he was a part of that with special effects and that's how he got noticed he was in like a trade magazine and somebody noticed him from that and were like oh let's get this guy david miller and then david miller was the su- supervising um person on the special effects where he had like robert and howard and, and them all doing it um fun little thing about that too is that uh because they were not given a whole lot of time uh and again, not given a ton of money, I'm sure, because it's five million bucks, uh, which is a low budget movie. But uh, what ended up happening was because it was such a you know short schedule for pre production, they ended up uh, just saying, "Hey, look, like let's just." make our own life casts and make this so that, you know, we can just, maybe we can just do these zombies. Like we'll just play the zombies. And Fred went along with that and was like, all right, let's do it, man. And so that's why, uh, literally like Robert Kurtzman and Howard Berger and some of the other special effects guys are actually the frat brothers, uh, which is kind of fun. And they also turn into the zombies later as well. But yeah, I, I just thought it was so interesting. And so like that all happened, but it made it a little bit easier because they didn't have to cast all new people and, you know, they already kind of knew each other anyway. So that kind of helps. Um, and then overall, like just with, from what the cast said, you know, it seems like everyone kind of got along pretty much. There wasn't too much drama. I don't think there wasn't anybody who was like a super duper, uh, like star in this even someone like tom atkins you know who had been a consistent working actor kind of but like again you know these these folks weren't necessarily household names or anything um and so yeah but then movie comes that you know the movie gets made all right great wonderful right and even like uh tom atkins was like when they were making the movie they thought it would be great like they thought it was gonna be a big thing so, you know, post-production's pretty straightforward. They ended up getting the music that they got, uh, which is great. And, uh, all right, cool. We're going to do release of this. We're going to do a uh, preview. And Fred Decker literally has said that this particular preview uh, of this movie just bombed so bad. It was so bad. Um, so much so that they actually had him go back and actually... He ended up getting the shed near the end scene where um, where Chris and Cynthia, they go in the shed where the zombies are like trying to come in and, and attack them. Um, that was all added after the preview, I believe. Um, and then also they did an original theatrical ending as well, um, where I think Cynthia's dog was like infected by a creep. And then the, it was kind of a uh, oh, it was like a carry ending where it's like, you know, ooh, twist shock or whatever. But this ending just did not work really well. Um, and uh, I think it, it, I don't think Fred Decker seemed to be the happiest with it. You know, he, you know, I just think like it was something where, you know, once he realized like, oh, shoot, like, you know, I mean, he put a lot of his heart and soul into this and, and really, you know, wanted it to be good, obviously. And I, I think it's great. But, you know, at this time, Again, it was something where people are telling you, like, oh, like, I don't know about this. And I think even he has said that, like, you know, it was kind of a thing of like, okay, well, maybe we could really, you know, we're going to release this. But like, you know, what kind of campaign do we have behind it? And I think a lot of it came down to that marketing campaign where, you know, uh, they just kind of dumped this movie, really. Like, they didn't do a whole lot of, like, advertisement for it. They didn't do a whole lot of, like, press or anything, obviously. Like, it was just kind of a... It just came out, really. It was just like, boom, here you go. And um, 
And I think also, too, I think in a way this movie was uh, a little bit ahead of its time. You know, it, it was poking a little bit of fun at these tropes from 1950s horror movies and sci-fi films. Um, it's like aware of itself and a little tongue in cheek. It's a little campy. And I think at that time in, you know, in horror movies, the people weren't looking for that. And so that's why this movie came in, you know, 20th place uh, <laughs> when it opened. And that's why it only, it didn't even make like a million dollars at the box office or anything. You know, it just, it sucks because, you know, you're like, oh shit. I wonder what this would have been like if it was another circumstance. And it also doesn't help that like then, so Fred Decker makes this movie and then probably right after this, he probably was making Monster Squad. And then guess what? Monster Squad didn't do that great either. And he is even being quoted as saying that like, yeah, it was tough for me to want to direct again or do anything with that because you get disheartened when it comes to that kind of a thing. Um, especially when it's your directing thing. Like this is your directorial debut. Then you directed this other thing and then people just kind of don't care and they eviscerate it quote unquote. And you know, it, it's tough, man. Like it, it has to be tough to, to deal with that, of course. So, um, but all right, so this movie kind of just goes into obscurity, I think, really. Um, but you then get again the 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 boon that is a cult film. It I think once it was able to go into home video, and after a certain point, people were wondering, "Oh, what is this movie?" Um, and I think once people realize what this film is um and kind of the camp nature a little bit of it and and kind of the tongue-in-cheek aspect of it and things like that i think that's when it then was able to pick up some steam and actually get this cult audience you know and people who you know grew up with it or watching it you know and maybe people who are of my uh either of my generation or maybe the generation before mine um, who may have just like seen this growing up and they're like, Oh my God, I love that little movie. Like that's so, it's just a weird film, you know, but like, it's so cool. Like, and I loved it. Um, and so, especially if you're a horror fan, you can appreciate some of the, the things that they're doing in there as well. And it's also just interesting. Cause then you have like, yeah, like you have this like uh, character who has like a, a very visible disability and you're just like okay got it great you know like but he's like try he's kind of a hero like in a way and and you're seeing that in 1986 like what the hell you know um these two characters really just came out of like i think uh Fred Decker was working on some other story. It was like a short film he actually did. And he just kind of plucked those two characters out of it. And apparently the one character already had the affliction, whatever disability he had. Um, so he just kind of kept with it. Cause Steve Marshall was literally saying like, he asked him like, what, why is this character disabled? Like I, nothing had a problem with it. It was just more so like a, what is, what is my, wh why is my character <laughs> disabled? Like I want to be able to build a character. Like what do I, but he never really gave him a reason i don't think which is like okay whatever but yeah and i think you know then this movie was able to get like a proper dvd release in 2009 um, is when it was released on dvd because they do make it a point to tell you that on the special features <laughs> um and then it also got a blu-ray release of the director's cut because there are two different director uh there's two different endings of this movie the one i mentioned earlier with the dog and then there's another one where it's like the spaceship flying over a um, graveyard and things like that so you know there is all of that but yeah and yeah i think this movie has really now with the legacy of it it has enjoyed this cult status you know so for example in 2009 um as part of the special features that they had on here they did a whole um screening <clears throat> The director's cut screening for the uh, they did it at the Alamo Draft House in Austin, I believe, where they actually had Fred Decker there. They had some of the cast there as well. Um, they had done um, cast commentary and also director commentary as well, which are both on this Blu-ray I have and things of that sort. So, but I really think that this movie 
it does have this like cult legacy. It does have this like um, following of people who I think really can get into you know something about it, whether it be kind of the the tongue in cheek nature, the can't of it a little bit. Um, there's definitely queer horror fans who are like, oh my god, like JC and Chris are totally gay for each other a little bit, or like maybe JC's gay or something, or maybe like Chris is gay. I don't know. Um, <laughs> parasites are always kind of an interesting thing to to have with horror movies you only have so much parasitic horror and i think night of the creeps is absolutely a big part of that um so yeah i mean i think that this film in particular it has this nice little it has this little following of people um same thing with i think the monster squad as well i i think that movie also has a level of of cult status to it um and so the fact that you know fred decker made this one and he made that one i mean you know it just shows that like hey look like if anything and i think from what i can gather from what charles gordon had said and then also what fred decker has said you know it's a lot better i guess to have something where you know maybe Maybe it didn't do great when it came out or anything like that, but people are fiercely loyal to this movie and really enjoy it, you know, and it has a staying power that maybe some other films that might have been a little bit more successful or something don't always have. Um, And that's the whole kind of conceit of cult cinema in general and of my show i guess really uh is that you know these movies have a certain staying power you know they have this legacy that follows them which is like i think really dope and cool so which is why i have this show but anyway uh but yeah that's what i have to talk about with uh night of the creeps at least in regards to um how the movie came to be what kind of legacy it now has and things of that nature um but without further ado we're going to move into a bit of a plot summary breakdown of the characters of night of the creeps so with our movie we begin uh in the last frontier space uh so we're in 1959 and so aboard a spaceship uh two aliens that have like these weird baby faces and like frowny faces and like weird baby bodies um they race to uh keep an experiment from being released by a third member of their alien crew which has been um possessed by the creeps if you will um this alien uh shoots this canister into space where it then crash lands to earth um and so nearby though a college man a big guy on campus if you will um takes his date uh to a parking spot where they see a falling star and they go to investigate um and so of course you do this you also get a little bit of an intro to um the sorority house as well which will then come back up as well but uh you see this in 1959 um so this particular falling star uh lands in the path of an escaped uh criminally insane mental patient um and as his date is attacked by an ex-wielding maniac um this boy finds this canister uh from which a small slug-like thing called a creep jumps out and into his mouth. Um, So that all happened as well. We also see that there is a uh, little bit of police officer, I guess, um, named uh, Cameron or Ray Cameron, um, who is the young Ray Cameron, which we will then see him later played by Tom Atkins uh, as older guy. But yeah, so that's this beginning part uh, in the 1950s. You know, you're talking about like, yeah, it's set in black and white. And um, it's kind of like that, you know, it's like that old myth of like the, you know, there's this escaped mental patient and these people at Lover's Lane. Like this is a this is a morality tale. It's an urban legend that has always been around. Um, so they're kind of, you know, having a little bit of fun with that. Um but then about 27 years later in 1986, uh, Chris Romero, who is played by Jason Lively, uh, pines over a law, lo- a love lost, um, 
this lady, Cynthia. It's Cronenberg, played by Jill Whitlow. Um, he is supported by his disabled friend, J.C. Hooper, played by Steve Marshall. Um, so actually, no, the, scratch that. He is in love with Cynthia, but he got broken up with by some other girl. Um, and he's in love with Cynthia now. And so uh, during Pledge Week at Corman University, which of course is uh, named after Roger Corman, uh he spots a girl, Cynthia Cronenberg, like I said, and he falls instantly in love with her, right? And so to get her attention, he decides that he's going to join a fraternity with his buddy, JC. And so uh, Cynthia's boyfriend, who heads up the Beta Epsilon fraternity, um, pretty much tasks them with stealing a cadaver from the University Medical Center uh, and then dispositing it... Um, on the steps of a rival fraternity house because, you know, colleges just have morgues everywhere. You know, they just have a morgue, I guess, or whatever. Um, I mean, I guess if you have a university medical center, you'll have a morgue, but okay. Um, anyway, but, um, and as I stated before, so the beta epsilon, uh, fraternity that they're trying to get into, uh, it is, uh, headed up by this guy, you know, who's dating, uh, Cynthia. He is, uh, Alan Kaiser, who is the guy who he's in the, the creeps, but he's also in, um, mama's family. He's from mama's family. He plays Bubba. Uh, but he was also in like double teamed. That's fun. He was in a Disney channel original movie. Um, but that's cute. But yeah, he's probably most well known for being in Mama's Family. Anyway, but yeah, so he is there. And um, also some of these other people are played by some of the special effects um, artists that are, uh, you know, were part of this film. Um, really due to necessity at this point. Uh, but yeah, so... All right, so Chris and JC, they go into this medical center, and they find the frozen corpse of, I think his name was Jimmy from the beginning. He was the guy who had the slug in his mouth, and um, they find this corpse in a secret room, because of course they found it, um, but when it grabs them, they flee away, and what then ends up happening is... Uh, the thawed corpse of this guy uh, then kills a medical student who is working in the lab. Uh, this medical student is played by a character actor by the name of um, David Paymer, who has gone on and he's been doing a couple different things. Um, he's uh, the boss from Drag Me to Hell. He's uh, Allison Lemon's boss in that movie, but he's also in like. Um, I mean, he's in a bunch of things. He was in, like, City Slickers. He was in um, Ocean's 13. He was nominated for an Oscar uh, for Mr. Saturday Night. Um, he's he's a character actor. He's done quite a few things. But anyway, so... But he dies. But anyway, so... He gets killed by this, like, zombie thing. And so... Uh, <laughs> we then see that, like, uh, Detective Ray Cameron, who is now played by Tom Atkins. We saw him earlier in the movie. Um, he's a haunted cop. Wonder if that means he's haunted by ghosts, but okay. But, uh, yeah, he's called in to one of the cryogenics labs break-ins that just happened, uh, where he discovers one of the bodies. And it's the same guy who, um took his date he took his you know girl or his ex-girlfriend or whatever um the boy who discovered that um experiment in 1959 is now missing but it's the same guy um and he's been set be free by chris and jc so um the corpse makes its way back to the sorority house uh, where he picked up his date 27 years ago. So of course, you know, like he just remembers where to go apparently. And I just love how like this corpse can just like walk freely on this college campus and nobody thinks anything of it. I love that. But anyway, so uh, there, what happens is that, um, so people don't realize it and um, they think, you know, I don't even know. They just, what ends up happening is that his head ends up splitting open and these sorority girls are like scared as hell. Um, and so he's then called to the scene. Um, Detective Cameron is, and he finds the body and he interprets the condition, uh, on the head, um, as a result of an accident to the face, um, which again would kind of 
be in line with, you know, I guess what maybe had happened to his girlfriend back then or, or whatever. But anyway, so we get our, we also get like, uh, our intro to like detective Ramey, um, as well. Like we have him and some of the other like police people as well. Uh, Bruce Solomon plays uh, Detective Ramey. He was in uh, Beverly Tills 90210. He was also in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Um, and yeah, he did a few things like that. Uh, it looks like he's a TV actor type dude. Um, and he has, didn't really work a whole lot, really. Uh, but he was in this movie. But anyway, so back to what we were talking about. So. <laughs> But yeah, so we have that that all happens. And then the next day, the fraternity brothers uh, confront Chris and JC um, outside. Um, they believe to be responsible for the previous night's incident um, where, you know, they uh, put it. I guess they put the corpse at the sorority house and they told them to put it at the fraternity house. Um, this is the scene where we have like um, we have that. Uh, Brad uh, pushes JC down, which is shitty. Um, and Cynthia's done with Brad's shit, and she like flicks him off pretty much, which is like really funny. Um, but anyway, so they are then uh, JC and Chris. They're brought in for questioning um, by the police, and based on a testimony um, from a janitor um, that witnessed them screaming out of, of uh, running out of the university medical center, quote screaming like banshees, which he just seems to really like. Um, to say, you know, I, I kind of get it. It's like very funny. Um, but anyway, so you have that. I just think it's so silly. Um, he's like screaming like banshees. Um, and this gentleman, um, if I'm not mistaken, where the hell is he at? What did he do? Anyway, but that, um, that gentleman, that guy who, um, is the janitor, he, uh, ends up they confess to at least JC and Chris they at least confess to breaking into the uh into the medical center but they deny moving the corpse which is true they didn't actually touch it um and so that night after they've left and everything um the dead medical student rises from his slab and then um runs to the janitor which he then kills um and then, and then the janitor, like, literally, like, is... He just thinks that the term screaming like banshees is just very funny. Um, which I kind of get. It's, like, very funny. Anyway, so uh, we then have Cynthia attempting to convince Chris and JC that these attacks are, like, related to zombies. But they're skeptical of this, of this fact. Um, you know, they don't really know why she would believe that but okay um when jc sees that cynthia is leaning on chris's shoulder um jc then leaves the two of them and is attacked by the slugs that have been since overtaken um this janitor but also like one of the bathrooms as well um because it, uh, they emerge from this possessed janitor um and this is where we find that JC um, then succumbs to this and he he dies, which is unfortunate. And I really like JC. I think he's a very cute guy. Um, and also, like, I just think he, like, seems like a good friend. And there's always this, there is a little bit of this, like, um, I don't think it was, so, I don't think it was written into it, maybe. But, like, I think people have um, been able to kind of lob onto it of, like, is JC a queer character? And I, I can definitely see it, um, for sure. Um, and so anyway, but after Chris walks Cynthia back to this uh, sorority house, um, he runs into Cameron, um, Ray Cameron, who has overheard their conversation. Um, and so like, he then comes back to Ray Cameron's house and at his house, um, Ray explains to Chris that the escaped lunatics, uh, 1959 uh, victim that we saw in the beginning, was his ex-girlfriend, which we kind of figured if you were paying attention to the movie. Um, and he secretly hunted down and killed that guy in revenge. And so after he reveals that he buried the body under what is now the sorority house, um, he gets... Uh, <laughs> he gets a call um, that the same 
axe-wielding lunatic has uh, killed the house mother, which there was a scene we saw a little earlier where that also happened as well, because now zombies are just coming back from the dead. Uh, I guess because they're possessed by the slugs, so that happened. Anyway, so... uh, he comes over and of course he like has this whole shootout where he blows off the corpse's head with his shotgun, which just releases more slugs. Um, Cause again, it all comes back to those, you know, beautiful, beautiful slugs. Um, so yeah, you have all that going on. Um, and then the next night while everyone prepares for a formal dance, uh, Chris finds a recorded message that JC posthumously left for him. Um, JC says that the slugs have incubated in his brain, um, but he has confessed or he has discovered that, um, they're susceptible to heat though. And he confesses his love to Chris, which is why he can be seen as a queer character. Um, and he wishes him luck with Cynthia. Um, so, Chris then comes and he recruits Cameron. He tells him, uh, like, they got Alfalfa because, like, Cameron talks uh, and he calls these two Spanky and Alfalfa, like, referring to the little rascals. So, um, I I think that's very cute, too. But uh, anyway, so who also is in the midst of a suicide attempt. When I think back on it, yeah, he was. He was about to, like, stick his head in the oven or something. It was crazy. Um, but they retrieve a flamethrower from the police armory, which is armed by Dick Miller, of course. Um, and so uh, they arrive at the sorority house just as Cynthia is breaking up with Brad. But Brad, uh, we saw earlier, actually became possessed. And I think this is a very funny scene because like nobody notices he's possessed. And so like him and Cynthia are just like, sitting out on the porch or whatever the little like stoop or whatever and like he's completely possessed but she's she wasn't paying any attention to him and so like he's just like drooling or whatever and she's like really silly uh, anyway so yeah um but of course they got to kill him because he's like dead as hell and he's possessed by these slugs. And so after killing him though, um, the beta fraternity brothers show up, um, despite having been killed in a bus crash, which we saw earlier as well. Um, because again, you know, somebody got possessed by the slugs and they all died, but they now are coming back as zombies. And so Cynthia and Chris, they team up to destroy the outside zombies while Cameron clears the house. So this is where we have our whole scene of, you know, um, this is the scene where we get like, you know, the iconic line of, well, you know, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that your dates are here. The bad news is, is that they're dead. And so, um, which is a great tagline for this movie. But anyway, um, yeah, so Cameron clears the house of these ladies um, and... Cynthia and Chris, they decide they're going to kick some ass, um, which is great. And so, uh, yeah. And so we see that Cynthia has the flamethrower and like Chris has a shotgun and he's just like mowing these bitches down. Right. And then like, you know, Cynthia's lighting them up, which I appreciate and love. Um, after they stop the horde, uh, Chris spots more slugs uh, racing towards the basement. And so she, uh, Cynthia explains that a member of the sorority, dumbass, uh, had received specimen brains for biology class. Because, you know, that's what you do in biology. Um, and in the basement, they find an enormous pile of slugs, which is really cool. It was like this kind of stop motion thing that they did. Um, I thought it was really well done. Um, and also Cameron uh, tape across his mouth, prepping a can of gasoline. Um, and so the detective begins counting down as he splashes gasoline and Chris uh, counts down in sync with him as he and Cynthia race out of the house. And as Cameron opens up the house's gas valve, um, several slugs leap to attack him. He then flicks his lighter and the house goes up into a fire explosion where he kills himself in, um, he kind of mercy kills himself pretty much. And uh, yeah, And then Chris and Cynthia, they share a kiss as they watch the flames burn and the house burns to the ground. 
So, as I stated earlier, this movie has a uh, two different endings. So, one of which was used for the theatrical release, and the other one was intentionally directed. Um, it was intended by director Fred Decker. So, the theatrical version of the dog who caused the bus accident, because again, uh, this bus driver was like trying not to hit the dog, and so he returns and he approaches Cynthia, and as Cynthia bends down towards the dog, the dog opens its mouth and a slug jumps out towards her. Um, so this is kind of like a chintzy ending and like not really all that good. And it just kind of flubs it really. Like it's just not a very good ending. Um, the original ending though, um, shows Chris and Cynthia standing in front of the burning sorority house with the cameras moving towards the, to the street where, um, police cars race towards the burning building and the police cars race by the charred and quote zombified, uh, Ray Cameron, who is shuffling down the street, still smoking a cigarette when he suddenly stops and falls to the ground. Um, his head then bursts open with the slugs that incubated inside his brain uh, they scamper out and slither towards a nearby cemetery um, suggesting that the slugs have found new hosts to inhabit and searchlights appear from the night sky revealing the source to be the spaceship from the beginning of the film with the aliens intending to retrieve their experiment and so that is the plot summary of uh, Night of the Creeps in a nutshell and so with this movie, um, yeah, like I said, I think with, like, Chris in particular, like, his character, you know, he's very much this kind of lovelorn kind of dude, um, some could be maybe say, like, is he a queer character, but maybe, I don't know, uh, but he is kind of this, like, um, yeah, he's kind of like this lovelorn, I guess, like, he is, uh, He's in love with Cynthia, of course, and and I think he's like, you know, he becomes he's a little bit selfish to begin, but like I think JC kind of tells him about himself, um, and so he ends up becoming like a little bit of a badass, and I I really appreciate that, and of course I love JC. He's definitely the character who you can consider to be kind of a queer character a little bit maybe, which is fine, um. And he, you know, he, he is, uh, unfortunately he, he tragically you know, bites it, but I think like he serves such an interesting purpose in this film, um, that I really, yeah, I can really get into and, and, uh, you know, he loves JC and he wants to, he wants the best for him, you know? which I can get into. And then of course with like um, Ray Cameron, I think he's just somebody who is so um, kind of done with life and, and his job as a police officer and like all this kind of stuff. He was a police officer and then he gets to become a detective. Um, but I think Tom Atkins does such a good job at like bringing this character to life. He is this kind of grizzled detective and um, he's kind of been, uh, you know, ridden hard and thrown away you know what i mean so like and honestly obviously he has a kind of tragic ending and you know um depending on how you see it but it's you know i just think he does such a good job with it and i also like cynthia too i think cynthia is uh an interesting character because i love how she like ends up getting the flamethrower at the end and she's like you know gonna be burning up these zombies man like you know you you think like she's just a sorority girl and the kind of connotations that come along with that um but i think she's different you know she calls brad on his bullshit and he breaks she breaks up with him and you know it, it's there's something i like about especially these four people i thought they were really really cool and, and enjoyable um some of the reception of this movie. So, you know, um, I will say that it looks like they had uh, a couple different quotes from this. So we have Nina Darton who wrote that the film, uh, though derivative shows a fair ability to create suspense, build tension and achieve respectable performances. Um, Neil Floyd of Time Out London wrote that the direction and special effects are poor, but the film is still enjoyable enough in a ramshackle sort of way. Uh, Michael Gingold of Fangoria, um, who he's actually in like the In Search of Darkness documentary, um, he rated it 3.5 out of 4. Um, 
stars and called it one of the year's most surprisingly entertaining fright features, one that homaged practically every subgenre imaginable, yet kept a sure hand on its tone and never descended into spoofery, which I can appreciate. Dread Central's uh, Steve Barton rated it five out of five and called it a classic in every sense of the word. Um, Chris Monfett of IGN rated it 7 out of 10, and he wrote that the film shows its age, but is scary, gory, and has plenty of quotable lines. And Nathan Rabin from the AV Club rated it C+, and wrote that Night of the Creeps has all the ingredients of a top-notch cult film, yet Decker too often ends up recycling cliches rather than subverting or spoofing them. Which, again, I don't think he was trying to spoof them necessarily, but okay. And then Scott Weinberg of FearNet, remember FearNet, everybody, uh, wrote that the film is not for everyone, but it is horror nerd nirvana. And then Eric uh, Profenic of DVD Verdict um, called it a great flick that deserves its cult status. And then later director, uh, so Fred Decker, he said that it's an odd movie. Nobody ever sets out to make a cult movie, but there are movies a wide audience will immediately Take two. And there's Night of the Creeps, which is a strange mismatch of detective story, horror movie, romance, science fiction, and comedy. But what's special about it, at the end of the day, I'm pleased with it. I pulled it off. So, yeah, I mean, uh, kind of wrapping up on this a little bit. So, I mean, this movie in particular, I think it is absolutely worth a watch of anybody who's a horror fan. I think if you haven't already seen it, please go out and, and seek it out. Um, it does come up on um, streaming every so often. Like I said, I saw it on Tubi once. So, you probably it probably will stream again at some point. And to be honest with you... Uh, that Blu-ray that I got, it was very reasonably priced. So you know what? I love that I got it. <laughs> it was very reasonably priced. I really liked it because Blu-rays are like super expensive sometimes. And so that one was like 10 bucks. It was great. Um, and now I own the movie. So yeah, I, I think this movie absolutely does exactly what it needs to. It, it is a love letter to this genre of horror. It is a movie that... Um, I think now I'm interested to kind of watch um, the monster squad and see what it's about, you know, and see what it's all about. I have a tangential understanding of what it is, but like, I am, I'm interested to see what it is and what's, what's going on with it. Um, and I think Fred Decker, he just seems like a real cool dude. You know, he, he doesn't have an ego about him. It doesn't seem like, and I think he, you know, he made a product that I think, is now appreciated for what it is. And I really love that. And I think that's great. And so this is absolutely something that, um, it's also not like, you know, it's got some boobs in here and there, you know what I mean? Like, you know, it's an R rated movie, but like, honestly, like, I don't even think it's like, this is not a super duper scary movie. You know what I mean? So like, I think it does so good with what it has. It has great effects. You know, that's kind of the, the, the blood and gore of it. Yes. But it's not a super duper scary movie like that, you know? And I, I that's what I appreciate about it at least. And, and, um, I can get into that. Of course, I love scary movies. Um, and I, I only get, I don't really get affected by scary movies actually, but this one I could really appreciate just for kind of the, the camp nature of it, the over the topness, a little bit of it and you know, all of that. But, uh, yeah, no, definitely. I would say give this a watch if you haven't already done so. And, uh, thank you so much to Robert for recommending it. I'm so happy to be covering it and, uh, yeah, please, please take your time and, uh, Go and watch this and uh, you won't be you won't be disappointed. I, I promise you that. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so via email at cultcinemacircle at gmail.com. In case you want to give any movie or episode recommendations, give feedback on the show, or if you'd like to just say, hey, I'm open to all of it. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can do so on Instagram and Instagram threads at Cult Cinema Circle. I tend to post what I'll be covering for the next week on there, post stories, things like that. On X, I'm at Cult Cine Circle. On there, I don't really post a whole lot, but if you want to follow the show, it's there for you to follow. And then on Letterboxd, I'm at Jesse, J-E-S-S-E, Kremp, K-R-E-M-P, all one word. On there, I log little movie reviews, I'll log what I'm watching, and then it's also a nice way to kind of see what I might be covering on the show in the future. 
Be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast on your podcatcher of choice, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm pretty much on all of them. Be sure to leave five stars and a one to two sentence review about the show uh, so we can grow the audience and then just spread the love all around. Be sure to tune in next week to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast, where I'll be covering 1996's Freeway. Described as a dark retelling of the Little Red Riding Hood story, after her mom and stepdad are arrested, 15-year-old Vanessa Lutz decides that instead of once again being put into a foster home, she'd rather go and search for the grandmother that she's never met and live with her. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cult Cinema Circle podcast. And remember, it's Miller time. Take care. Bye. Bye.